Hi, I'm Jason Scott. I'm a mortgage broker with TMG The Mortgage Group and host of iloveedmontonrealestate.com. My guest today is City of Edmonton Councillor Scott McKean. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Scott, you're the councillor for Ward 6, which goes uh, from 149th Street east to Commonwealth Stadium and south of 111th Avenue to the North Saskatchewan River. Obviously, that is a very diverse ward. You've got everything from mature neighborhoods to, you know, the downtown core to areas that have, you know, some social issues, etc. Give me a little bit of perspective on, on your ward as you see it. Well, everything from affluence to abject poverty, you know, homelessness, uh, which has been a pretty large focus of my uh, work this term, is centered around uh, and in this ward. So it's a real concern. And, and yet, you know, a lot of our work, it, it gets, it's all over the ward all the time, depending on, you know, issues arise around all kinds of things, whether we're uh, the city is going in to do neighborhood renewal of the sidewalks and streets and things that can raise a number of issues. It's, uh, you know, I quite love the diversity. So you're never working on the same thing today as you did yesterday, or it's rare. I always loved that as a journalist. I was <clears throat> with the Edmonton Journal for 24 years. I think that might reflect a certain attention deficit disorder on my part. So I like I, I sort of thrive in areas of novelty. If I had to sit and do similar things every day, I think that would be a, a I think I'd struggle with that. Now, I have some ideas on what some of the big real estate related issues are in your ward. Sure. What's your perspective of what you see as, you know, what's going on in the, in the ward? What are the opportunities? What are the challenges? Let me start with the residential areas. I think that as a city corporation, as, as city government, and as a broad community, I think we're still going to have to do a lot of work on wrapping our head around infill housing. We want our mature neighborhoods to revitalize, the housing stock to revitalize. And we want to see some density, increase in density, more compact city, which is good for not just the environment, but it makes the city more efficient. The more people you have in an area that's already serviced with the infrastructure and parks and police and fire and all those things, then you get better use of those services, you know, a better cost ratio on it. So that's a really important thing. And I don't apologize for that. You know, some, sometimes people will say, oh, you're just after more taxes. And I'll go, you know what? You're right. <laughs> because if we continue to sprawl and we don't get those efficiencies of higher density neighborhoods, then taxes are going to uh, start to uh, leap upwards and out of control. And that then not only impacts the residential community, the taxpayers, but it affects our ability to attract and maintain business. So it's a really important effort we're making an infill. So where I'm getting to is, so over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, with council's decision to allow lot splitting on 50 foot lots, we've seen a majority of the development has been in so-called skinny houses, but in neighborhoods like Cladora and Westmount and Belgravia, those are highly desirable neighborhoods. And those skinnies in those neighborhoods are selling for upwards of $750,000. That's right. So it's not addressing any affordable housing issue. Exactly. And that's been, you know, and we've been, uh, as a council, criticized over that. So, you know, I was, I, I just wanted to understand what was going on. So I talked to some sort of boutique infill builders about this. 
And their answer is that with the land economics at play today, you wouldn't want to build a skinny, you know, a less desirable neighborhood, knowing that you're going to have to ask 600, 650 for it to make profit out of it. Well, who's going to buy a $650,000 skinny in a less desirable neighborhood? It's a good question. So what I think we're going to have to wrap our head around is what does attainable housing look like in mature neighborhoods? And I think the answer is going to be higher density. So it's going to be uh, row housing, stacked row housing, fourplexes, uh, skinny apartments, which, uh, you know, we saw in um, Garneau recently. Mm -hmm. But that will come again with, I think, a lot of concern and controversy. And I totally understand that. You know, we, our template, you know, having grown up here, the template in our mind of what success looks like for sort of the middle class is that you buy a new home, in a new suburb, you know, and that's how you start out in life. And I, again, I totally get that. We have these templates in mind. So for a couple of years, I, my family and I lived in a loft in the Phillips lofts on 104th Street, which I think were really undervalued at the time, which is why I could afford one at the time. And I talked to the uh, sort of one of the first in, in the Phillips lofts, a guy, uh, Barry Kaiser, who was the condo board president at the time. And he said, they were really undervalued because people didn't get them. And by that, he means it's not an elitist, elitist comment, really. It's just, it's not in mind for people who grow up here. So when we say row houses or we say duplexes to Edmontonians, in mind, what comes for them is this image of some really bad builds in the, probably the 1970s right. and 80s. Right, or predominantly rental complexes. The bad build, uh, they look ugly. There's these side-by-side duplexes, stucco and some kind of siding. Uh, big gap from the uh, from below the uh, front uh, walk, that sort of thing. So it's just, I get that. And so what we have to do is communicate better, I think, what are our goals for infill housing? Mm-hmm. And I so I think what some people believe, and there's a certain columnist in town who reinforces this notion that it's all about this sort of lefty greeny mayor, you know, leading this charge into infill and the rest of us following along like lemmings. You know, it's it's much more complex than that. And there's a broader civic value or civic need at play here. And that is to have affordable or attainable housing for people that are entering the workforce now or will enter the workforce in the next 20, 30 years. They want to buy a home. Some of them will want to buy a home. Not everybody will, but some will want to buy a home. So how do you have a $350,000 or $400,000 home in a mature neighborhood now and not force them to live in a far-flung suburb? Which, again, some people will choose. This is not, I'm not making a value judgment about that. What I'm saying is we have goals to revitalize our mature neighborhoods, to increase the density in those neighborhoods for tax efficiency, maybe to keep some schools open in those mature neighborhoods, to support local business in and around those neighborhoods, which which adds to the vibrancy and vitality of our mature neighborhoods. So there's real sort of, I think, legitimate goals that I think the majority of Edmontonians would support. And we often hear that when we're having a public hearing on a project coming into a mature neighborhood. People will say they fully support 
the city's infill goals, but it just doesn't work right here. <laughs> so Nimbyism, basically. Yeah, and I, again, I don't want to mock or downplay that. I totally get it. To us, our home and our block and our neighborhood, these are part of our self-image, right? They're, they're, they give us comfort. Uh, they provide happiness. And so you mess with that, and people are going to be upset. What I do think, though, is that if you had four skinny homes on the block built in the next five years, that if you checked in five years later, people would go, yeah, no, nothing's different. Right. You know, so, so change is hard kind of thing. Yeah, and I think often people go to the worst possible scenario in the head they see, I don't know, drug gangs or something working out of those new skinny houses, which is not the case. So in other words, what we're really saying is average families – will probably not living in single family, in new single family homes in mature neighborhoods. They'll be buying attainable housing in those mature neighborhoods. So the look will be different. But, I, you know, I've seen some really nicely designed stuff, mm-hmm. really nicely designed stacked row housing, row housing, duplexes. And I think as they start to emerge, a lot of the fear and loathing will disappear. Because it'll just become part of the background we live in, right? But right now it's different mm-hmm. and people are really skeptical and they don't necessarily want them in their neighborhoods, nor will they necessarily want to buy one. But I think we have to work to communicate why we're doing this. And then I think the market will eventually catch up. But for example, these boutique builders will tell you they build skinnies rather than what we call semi-detached, but what everybody calls a duplex. Because they know that if they built, they put the same investment in a duplex, they would get far less. They they wouldn't be able to charge the same amount of money. And that's because the the stigma of having a party wall and neighbors literally on the other side of some two-by-sixes. I think it's that, but I also think it's that old image we have in our mind. You know, even just saying to people, yeah, I live in a duplex in neighborhood X, Y, or Z. Right. People will go, oh, and you'll be judged on the fact that you live in a duplex, even though they can be beautiful. And I will tell you, I wrote a a story about a duplex in, I think it's Glenora, that ended up being the most clicked on story in the uh, the Edmonton Journal website that year. And in fact, made it onto Stephen King's website, strangely, (laughs) but it was about a duplex built by a divorced couple. The ex-husband lived on one side, ex-wife lived on the other side, and the kids had bedrooms. They didn't have to leave, so dad would lock his double doors when it was mom's week, and he would open them when it's his week. And it was a really mature, quite lovely idea. And driving by that place, the way it was designed, too, you had on one side, you had a a front door, and on the other side, it was a side door. So driving past there, even at a slow pace, you would say, that's a pretty big house. Right. It looked like a single-family home. Absolutely. So revitalization of older neighborhoods is a pretty big deal around here. There have been a number of older uh, neighborhoods that have had it, Riverdale, Overcourt, etc. And so, you know, you look at the infrastructure of these neighborhoods, they're 50 years old, 60 years old, etc. What sort of desire is there to continue that process and the ability financially for the city to continue, you know, redoing sidewalks and repaving, et cetera, in those neighborhoods. So when the program was introduced, I'm going to say 
10 years ago. I, I wasn't on council at the time, but it came with a 1.5% surcharge on your taxes. Everybody paid it. But I think the previous rotation was that you get new sidewalks, streets, lampposts, and we'll be back to you in 120 years. So that was like, that was how much budget was set aside to do that. It was ridiculous. And neighborhoods were crumbling. And I think it was a very progressive move by that council to put on the percent and a half surcharge, which gets the rotation down to closer to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And in 30 years, they might go back and go, the sidewalks are bad, but the street's fine, whatever. But at least you'll get that. Neighbors, uh, neighborhoods will know that they're going to get that care and attention. And I think Edmonton led the country in addressing an infrastructure issue. It's a peril for citizens of a neighbor of a community that council can have low tax increases, but base them on not doing the infrastructure work that needs to be done, the maintenance. Right. And that council, it won't show up. Yeah. You know, there were councils in the nineteen early nineteen nineties in Edmonton that had two or three years of zero percent, so no tax increase. What a wonderful man, I would love that. Yeah, sure. Go to the polls saying Helps we didn't increase yeah, we didn't increase <laughs> your taxes. People loved it. So the, the pothole plague of the last six, eight years that, you know, it's, that was because of that. Yeah. We, you know, the city cut back on the proper amount of road maintenance that needed to be done and roads were crumbling in this city. And so I think it's $1 billion this council ha- is spending in this capital budget round and most of it's on new roads, but on rehabilitation. Right. Edmontonians expect that. And I've always said, you know, a pothole isn't just a pothole. When somebody has potholes on their street, to them, it's a symbol of their aspirations of for the city. They want to live in a great city. They yeah. want to live in a city that's first rate. Yeah. And so that was a symbol of third world or something. Yeah, decay and whatnot. Yeah. And they were really unhappy about it. So, <clears throat> yes, if you hit a jarring pothole on your drive, that'll be upsetting. But it was also more than that. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of criticism for tax increases. Totally understand it. it. This is the most transparent taxation of them all. And we uh, we get a lot of uh, criticism and suggestions, and that's all good. That's I'm not, I'm not unhappy about that. I think it's a good way to keep pressure on city council to always be looking at ways to find efficiencies and keep taxes down. But to do a segue back to our our earlier conversation, thus the push for a more compact city. Right, which now Edmonton's had pretty explosive growth. Like in uh, 2011, the city proper population was about 812,000. As of 2016, it was up to 932,500, give or take. Lots of people moving here. By and large, growth is happening on the outskirts of the city, either new neighborhoods in the city proper, or they're moving into, you know, uh, Strathcona County or Spruce Grove, etc. Right? How do you balance that growth with trying to densify and revitalize inner city neighborhoods? Well, a couple of things. So the goal that council set again a few years back was twenty five percent of that growth being accommodated in mature neighborhoods. So in the existing footprint. 
the best I think the city has ever done is 16% until last year where they hit 24%. I'm a little skeptical about those numbers though. They're probably accurate, but I wonder how much of that is basement suites and how much of that is in fact the condo development downtown. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of it is in the condo development downtown, which is fine and fair and we should be looking to do that. But if you include those numbers, I think the 25% goal is a little bit low. So yeah, we're under increasing pressure to find ways to best handle growth. The other factor coming to play though, I think, is that millennials want to live near the core. Not all of them. It's a bit of a generalization, I know, but we hear that time and again, and I've experienced that in in talking to um, younger folk, you know, at events. They want to live near the core. I think it's in part because a lot of a lot of us were raised in suburbs, and we so we had a suburban experience with malls as our sort of commercial retail hospitality experience, mm-hmm. and then we watched TV, and we saw what was going on in New York and these other places. So that creates a sort of a craving for that uh, sort of urban experience, the urban experience lifestyle. And they want it. So I do think we'll continue to see growth downtown and in Oliver. And a lot of that will be rental now, because again, that might be either the millennial might not be able to afford to purchase or they don't want to purchase, which is fine too. So that's going fairly well. Downtown and Oliver is going fairly well. I think we're getting some good uptake in basement suites, which offers affordable housing for students and others that need it. So I have a motion in asking about the economics at play, because there's some communities that I represent that I think badly, not only badly need, but would really want infill development and row housing would be fine. You know, as long as it's of a caliber of a quality. I always sort of am loath to do this, but I'll talk about Macaulay. Mm-hmm. Macaulay has Little Italy in it, mm-hmm. fabulous amenity. It has Chinatown in it, fabulous amenity, but it also has been the center of a lot of social disorder and homelessness. So if we're going to have success with Macaulay, I think we have to do a bunch of things at once. And we've been working, the mayor's office and my office have been working really hard to get a strategy together with the province and the provinces on board on permanent supportive housing. Right. And if we can have that distributed around Edmonton. So if we could relieve a lot of the social disorder in Macaulay, I think that community will pop because it's lovely. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that Macaulay was basically used as, you know, it's a bit of a coarse term, but used as a dumping ground. Everything was centralized into that area, which, you know, it makes sense from one perspective, but it does stigmatize a neighborhood. Yeah. And it it impacts the people who already live there. It impacts any further revitalization of a neighborhood like that. So how do you solve that problem? And there have been some builders have been, doing some work in there and built some really nice houses and they've been sold, but the margins are not going to be what you'd get in another community. I understand that. So you're a bit of a risk taker going into Macaulay. But so that's my hope is that we could reduce the social disorder and at the same time, increase the number of people moving into the area who have the ability, uh, financial means to support little Italy and support Mm -hmm. Chinatown. Then those areas thrive as well right Mm -hmm. so it's not like we want to push poor people Mm -hmm. 
out of Macaulay. And I think these, these are really nuanced issues. But having people who have some financial wherewithal move into the neighborhood is good too. And they, they might have more time than others to commit to volunteering on the community league. When you have a community that has too much non-market housing in it, I think you reduce its capacity to build itself up mm -hmm. or to lobby council or, you know, there's a lot of things that can be missing in these challenged communities. And I, that's, you know, it's kind of near and dear to my heart. I don't know if it's because I'm a Northeast Edmonton guy or just that sort of underdog thing. That's mm -hmm. to me what we should be doing. And I got to tell you, you know, we've heard from the business revitalization zones, Chinatown, Little Italy, Stony Plain Road, Kingsway Business Association, Old Strathcona Business Association. They're being hurt by social disorder. You know, once you get people panhandling in the area, passed out in front of your store, it hurts business. Sure. So we will uplift not just the lives of these um, folk who are, for the most part, mentally ill, suffering from childhood or lifetime trauma, probably chronically addicted as they self-medicate that pain. Mm -hmm. These are health care issues. Mm -hmm. This is not a criminal justice issue. And, and you know how often do the cops get called on this? It will also help the businesses. And I believe strongly, and I think there's evidence to support this, strong evidence to support this, that we will save the community money. Mm -hmm. We could build the nicest housing, permanent supportive housing facilities, offer intense supports in them. We will still save a pile of money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Versus incarceration or hospitalization, you bet. And then we see some of these mature neighborhoods pop, as I say. Suddenly there'll be uh, families moving into them because, you know, we looked as a family at one point, we looked at Norwood and a couple other places. And I knew, you know, I'm again, old cop reporter in mind here. I, I knew about that those areas can have some street prostitution. And I thought about my daughter's walking home after school or whatever and having a car slow down. And, and I just wasn't willing to risk that impact on their lives. I'm not, you know, they can handle themselves. I'm not worried that anything really bad would happen. But it's just, you know, what does that do to somebody's worldview when there are guys trolling around your neighborhood looking for prostitution? Like, it's just, it's sickening. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you look at, say, Macaulay or Eastwood, et cetera, you know, 118th Ave, it's yeah. not in your ward, but uh, it speaks to the issue. You're starting to see families move in there, an artistic bent in a lot of cases yeah. to the families, because the housing right now is affordable versus other parts of the city. What do you see as the evolution of that? Yeah, there's a funny evolution. I think uh, 118th Ave or that Alberta Avenue area is a really, it's a bit of a cautionary tale in some ways, because you do have affordable housing, artists, musicians, other creative types move into the area. And it's their efforts then that start to revitalize the area and see, you know, creative business in the area. So the Carrot, which is that coffee house, which is great. Yeah, volunteer-run uh, coffee yeah, house. Yeah, it's yeah. really neat. And then the city invested a bunch of money in the streetscape. I don't think that area has been spoiled by success yet. But at some point it will, mm -hmm. and the housing costs or the rental costs will be too much for the artists that actually generated the, you know, the climate uh, or the ambiance in that area that will turn it into a success. So what does the city do? What does a city do to ensure that 
doesn't happen each and every time. I mean, they're wonderful agents of revitalization, but you don't want to exploit artists that way. Yeah. You got to find a way to, you got to find ways to ensure that they can live a healthy life too, and not have to worry about mortgage payments every month or rent payments every month. So that's a, you know, we do have arts habitats, subsidized artist housing in the city, but do you take that further? I don't know the answer to this, by the way, Jason, I'm just, do you take that further and say you have a subsidy program so they could stay in the home they're already in so that Alberta Avenue, that area could continue to enjoy their efforts? So Scott, this is the first year of uh, the new arena for the Oilers. We've seen a new tower be built for City of Edmonton employees. There's a lot of other development going on in downtown, specifically in the ICE district. Where does downtown go from here once the last of that work is done? Well, there's actually a lot more on the books, I think, you know, and I, so first of all, that was, you know, I think the proof is, is in the pudding now that the arena was a tremendous catalyst project. It was very controversial, sort of happy I wasn't on that council because it was very controversial. But it's, you know, I think it, for many reasons, it's turned out to be a real positive. And I think one of those is the fact a lot of Edmontonians never came downtown. There wasn't much reason in their mind. And secondly, they had a shopping mall closer to them. Why would they come down to a shopping mall downtown? So they've been brought downtown to go to an Oiler game or go to a concert, see Garth Brooks. And in doing that, they've experienced downtown again, and they've probably seen things that will bring them back. Uh, one of the restaurants, that kind of thing. So that's it's been the best marketing tool for the city ever. But, you know, let's not forget that the new Royal Alberta Museum has not even opened yet. Let's not forget that the city has major upgrades coming to Jasper Avenue to uh, build a streetscape that you hope will catalyze more fine grain retail hospitality on Jasper Avenue, like we saw on 104th Street. That was a really successful makeover, and we're doing that on Jasper Avenue. There is that we've just put forward a proposal to expropriate land that is surface parking lots right now on either side of 107th Street, mm-hmm. just north of Jasper Avenue to create a warehouse district park. Mm-hmm. Brad Lamb, I noticed, who has a tower in the paper pro- today. Well, he I, I see he's already advertising as tower on the park. Yeah. So, you know, that idea of having that sort of beachfront, it's a park, but it's beachfront will act as a catalyst for more residential development in our downtown. I think what's interesting about our downtown is that we won't have the head offices that Toronto has or Calgary has. And I think we've always always seen that as a real negative. And I, and I get it, you know, but we're going to have some head offices. We're going to have buildings with a lot of different kinds of business in it. But we're also going to have a lot of residential development downtown, a lot of condo towers. So what does that mean? I think what it means is 530 comes around. You know, it's not like the place clears out, right. like in some downtowns, right? right? doesn't become a ghost town because there's, you know, there's, say, 20, 30,000 people living downtown. That feeds the hospitality industry that creates the vibrancy that others come to. So I think that's really, in a strange way, I think we have a we got a sort of, we got lucky in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, would this city council here 
reject a bunch of head offices coming to Edmonton? Of course not. But I think the residential it offers a real tremendous boost to the feel and flavor and, and vibrancy downtown. The issue we have is in uh, office vacancy, particularly in B and C class buildings. Right. What with the new office development, uh, which I still, you know, I still kind of refuse to see that as a negative. We get new office towers built, and then office vacancy rates are shown as a negative, probably in boardrooms in Toronto and Montreal. Well, I think it's incumbent on us to look for creative ways to um, re- retrofit those buildings for residential or mixed use, or even permanent supportive housing, or find other, you know, the police are looking for expanded space downtown. I think it's going to take uh, sort of multiple strategies to get at this, but I, I get that we have, there's some onus on the city. And I would argue the province, by the way, mm-hmm. to help with this. The province has pulled employees out of the downtown in the last couple of years mm-hmm. for the Neil, to put them in the Neil Crawford Center. Tough to argue if they're getting efficiencies out of that with a $9 billion deficit. Hard to argue against that. But, you know, I think previous provincial governments have been aware that they have responsibility to the downtown as well and that their employees want to be there. Mm -hmm. But also it helps create that sort of stimulus for downtown. Right. So... You mentioned uh, Brad Lamb. He's a major developer out of Toronto. He's got at least one tower that's very soon to start construction on. And he was talking in the paper today about having, you know, a couple of more uh, towers coming into Edmonton. So when you see a, a major developer like that take a bet on our downtown, what does that tell you? Well, you know, so again, I want to just sort of trip back through memory lane as a journalist and as a columnist with the Edmonton Journal who wrote a lot about this city. So there was, the fact was that when major corporations would buy advertising in the newspaper chain that I worked for, they would often buy them in Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, Regina, Calgary, and Vancouver and skip Edmonton. Even though Edmonton, the Edmonton Journal had higher circulation, and was considered a far better newspaper, certainly through the 80s, 90s, and early in the 2000s. Better newspaper, higher circulation. They were skipping Edmonton. So what was going on there? I think, you know, we could probably have a whole other conversation on why, but Edmonton is a bit of a um, forgotten city Mm -hmm. and a hidden gem, I would argue. And I think some folks like Brad Lamb are starting to figure that out. And then we have groups commercial realtors doing the trips to the boardrooms. And I just heard yesterday that last year, the, the not too many boardroom doors were opening because Alberta was just like, you know, forget it. But they're starting to open again. And Edmonton much more than Calgary. Relative to Calgary, our economy is more stable. Mm-hmm. I think there's more impetus here to be creative and make things because we are further distanced from major population centers. And so this has ended up with a very creative city, a city where people will, even competing businesses, will sometimes partner up on stuff, help each other out. And I've heard this too many times for it to just be sort of marketing BS. There's something unique here, and I think it's uh, very positive, very creative. People work hard here. 
we debate the heck out of things here, which is fine too, but people are starting to get it, I think, in some other places that maybe we should have a look at Edmonton. I mean, I don't know what the fate of the Aldrich Tower will be, and I can't comment in depth on where I stand on it, but even that, I saw that there was a story ran in uh, Calgary's Metro about the Aldrich Tower proposal, and it was sort of like, wow, you know, this will be taller than anything in Calgary. What's going on? So that's, I think that's probably the stage we're at, Jason, is people are starting to, out east are starting to go, what's going on in Edmonton? And when you think about it, the other thing that has always driven me a little crazy, and I know it drove uh, former Mayor Steve Mandel crazy, is how many institutions we have here where there's not a clear tie to Edmonton. So we have this new art gallery open. It's the Art Gallery of Alberta. It's the University of Alberta. It's the Capital Region Board. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like for some reason we've been afraid to use the name Edmonton. And that has to change. Because I'm really proud of this city and I think a lot of Edmontonians are. And I think we have a lot to boast about that. And maybe we're different. You know, maybe we're different. Maybe we're a little more reticent. And maybe that's a good thing too. Mm-hmm. I, I, You know, I sort of sometimes feel like you don't want to come here and invest, screw you, because others will figure it out and will be here. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Aldrich Tower because I was going to bring it up. Just for reference, this is a proposed 80-story tower. It'd be residential uh, and I guess a little bit of commercial. It would be right on basically the River Valley Bank, just east of the Shaw Conference Center in an area called the Quarters. The Quarters is an area where there's been you know, again, it's got social issues. It's got a vast sea of surface parking lots. And it's been in this sort of uh, purgatory for redevelopment for a very long time. So given that someone is prepared to build an 80-story tower there, what does that say to what will happen to that part of the city and downtown? Well, I think we're always excited about seeing bold visions and applications like this. It creates a lot of headaches for a decision maker because there's been a lot of criticism. So there is, it would sit top of bank and the hill going down from there would be in play Mm -hmm. in the development. So the criticism has been that is in the river valley, that hill, and that's sacred. Well, but and it's currently zoned parkland. It is currently zone parkland. You know, I purposely went out and had another look at it to see what it looks like. And it's a little hard to describe as natural <laughs> or beautiful or even accessible, just the way it's in its current condition. And uh, so, but you listen to that, you know, and you know that there's some philosophical issues at play. If we broach that contract, with the, you know, we make with citizens that the river valley is sacred, then we have to do that with really serious consideration of the benefits far outweighing the costs. Now, Charlie Richmond, who is the local representative for the Sierra Club, Sierra Club's pretty serious in its advocacy for natural areas, preservation of same, and, you know, ecological corridors, sustaining habitat for wildlife. 
So we hear from Charlie quite often, and usually it's in to give us grief over some proposal. On this one, he showed up to say that hill that the alternate proposal involves is the probably the most disturbed piece of River Valley land there is, and secondly, that it has next to zero ecological value. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's parking lot and dilapidated buildings and whatnot right now, just south of Jasper Avenue, right on the river. And, and, and then at the at the south end of it is a uh, retaining wall yeah. to protect Gerson it Road. from sliding into Gerson Road. Yeah. So let's not have a false debate, is my point. Mm-hmm. You can be against the tower proposal for many reasons, but can we set aside the debate that this, this is sacred natural area or parkland? Some people won't do that, and that's fine. And I think they're making the thin edge of the wedge, slippery slope, no pun intended, argument, which is, you know, which I actually always think is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You know, if the people that are strident activists for the environment and for wildlife show up at our public hearings to tell us that we're about to make a mistake, I appreciate that. I think we need to hear that. I think those people, yes, are maybe on an extreme end of the debate, but that's we need to hear from those people. I think they're probably overstating it in this case. The more sort of troubling question all along this was about the in, real intent here. And so I asked a question about upzoning and flipping. That is... I've seen it happen now. It's happened twice in Ward 6 on my watch, and that's really upsetting. You put the community through a lot of stress. You put administration through a hell of a lot of work. You get and you know you get it upzoned, and then it's on the market. Right. There was one on the market within two weeks yeah. of the upzoning, which suggests that the whole thing was a sham. Yeah. I've been pretty conscious in asking Aldrit and their representatives, are you serious? Because an 80-story tower raises questions about that in this economy. Mm-hmm. Are they really serious? Well, maybe they're ultimately going to settle at 40, or maybe they're going to say, okay, you know what, city council or administration, we won't go ahead with this right here, but we want a different piece of land and we want a sweetheart deal. Yeah, I, you know, I can't know their intentions. I can't read their mind. I'll take them at there. I'll take it all at face value, which is what we have to do, and then say, the design and impact of the development would it be good for the city as a whole, not just for the local communities, but for the city as a whole. But for the local communities, there's two ways of looking at this. One is that it would suck up all possible demand in the area. There'd be no reason to build another condo building for 20 years. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. I don't think that's the case. I think that just as likely is other investors will go, this is really going to bring a lot of people to the area. And it also might break the back on the, the sort of old myth and stigma around that area. So you might then see, my hope is then you would see other investors come into the quarters and start building residential buildings, hopefully not all of them 80 stories. But I think it could actually be a catalyst rather than a black hole. Right. You know, I'll ask questions about that. We haven't really got to the proposal yet. And I have mixed feelings about it. I'm still, uh, as I should be, waiting till all the evidence and opinion and information is in. And But we just sent the land sale back. 
right. the proposed land sale. We sent it back for more work to protect the public interest. And if that's not right, then we won't even go to the public hearing on the rezoning because right. there'd be no point. Right. Now, the idea of that, you know, being parkland and being redeveloped for a commercial purpose leads into Rossdale mm. and the area around the, the old Rossdale power plant. Yeah. There's been talk for years about, you know, that needs to become something. That needs to maybe be Edmonton's version of a Granville Island kind of idea. What do you see happening down there? Well, I love that idea. We have to find somebody with maybe a billion dollars. You know, it would be a huge development. And you, know, you could stage it over time. But that, the main old power plant building down there, I haven't actually been in it, but people have been have told me it's just, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge to redevelop that, to refurbish that building is a major undertaking. And I think it has to have a reason beyond this could be a market. So I think it has to have some major investment, probably by three or all three orders of government. I love the idea of a national center for indigenous art and culture as being down there because of the ties to Rossdale. The mayor suggested that could be placed in, in the old Royal Alberta Museum. But hopefully we'll continue to have those conversations. But I think you almost need a catalyst for that. We're doing some work. We have the uh, Touch the Water Promenade going in there. There's other some other amenities, docks and things that are going in. And of course, the what we call the funicular project will help lead people from downtown down to that area, whether they're walking or biking or in a wheelchair for that matter. So that'll help to sort of draw more people down to that area. But of course, you've got to have things to do while you're there. People who see the River Valley as sort of more natural uh, will be averse to think of seeing a major commercial development down there. But the other thing is, you know, I've mentioned a couple times during the conversation, we would have to put parkades down there. Like you can do a parkade so it looks like a condo building or something uh, with retail or hospitality on sidewalk level. But Edmontonians get, most of us get to places by our car. It's just a fact. I don't think we could have a shuttle bus situation that would get everybody down to a major Granville Island-like development down there without some parking. Some parking. I'm not saying turn it everything into parking, but there would have to be some parking down there. I really, I you know, I think a lot of us sort of delight in that idea, having a place down there where you could shop, you could go to restaurants, could sit out on a patio overlooking the river with a beer, a glass of wine, a cup of coffee, whatever it is. I think we all love that idea. Not all of us. Uh, A lot of us love that idea. Uh, But I think there has to be some reason, some catalyst, if we're going to do that in a big way. And that National Center for Indigenous Art and Culture. Look, I think Edmonton really should own Indigenous culture. And by that, I mean, this should be the place in Canada where people come to learn and experience Indigenous culture. We have the largest, or soon to be, we'll have the largest uh, Indigenous population in Canada. That community is really starting to strut its stuff in business, music, art. And so that to me would, another way, you know, Edmonton has always struggled, you know, and, you know, maybe why we're not as uh, well known out east or in Europe or the U.S. We don't have that one major brand. 
Calgary's got that stampede. All the power to them. I think it's been a wonderful, in its own way, a tremendous marketing program for the city and what it stands for and, you know, the culture there. This is me dreaming a little bit, but what if Edmonton, whereas where Indigenous culture was to be found and enjoyed, and that there was, I know there's going to be another APTN broadcast out of Edmonton of, of that. And so I really like that idea. And I know there'd be some reticence, but I got to tell you, which there would have been in me until I was on city council's indigenous initiative. And I've met so many elders now, you could not meet kinder people who welcome you, not as a colleague, not as, as a friend, but almost as family. It's really remarkable. We could have learned so much from that culture. Uh, we really could have. But I'm really excited about that idea. We have a long ways to go uh, and with that, you know, in, in helping uplift in partnership, uh, helping uplift that community. But I think they're, uh, you know, 100 years from now or something, they'll be rocking. In terms of the city brand, it seems to me that the River Valley itself yeah. should be what Edmonton is known for. Yeah. Hey, when I moved here, I didn't know there was a River Valley. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I would bet the average Canadian doesn't know about it either. Why hasn't the city marketed that? So a couple of things come to mind on that. First, I would say when I was doing some work after leaving the Edmonton Journal, before being elected, I did I sort of set up my own communications company and I was doing work for Alberta Innovates Tech Futures and I met a, a really interesting scientist. He, he commutes every day out to Vegarville, out to their agricultural sciences institute out there, but he would rave about the River Valley and how it was this undiscovered, unknown thing and he just loved it and went on and on and on about it. What it reminded me of is that the Gabbatonians take it for granted. The other thing that comes to mind for me is I don't think we've really tapped into the potential of the river itself. So we walk by, ride our bikes by, run by the river. So the river is there, but and it's starting to get used more and more. But that potential has never really been tapped for canoeing, kayaking, uh, you know, we're going to have to watch it with sound levels coming from the boats. But it's actually a great fishing river. I've fished it a number of times on in a drift boat one time and catching gold eye on a fly rod. It was incredible. And then when you finally, it was coming down from Devon, and you actually don't know you're in the city, in a city, until you get to the Grope Bridge. Mm-hmm. Like everything's hidden behind a tree canopy. Yeah. And it's amazing. And then the view of downtown from the river is spectacular. <laughs> and I, you know, I wish more Edmontonians that they could have that experience or, or seek out that experience because you want to feel sense of pride for where you live. You know, June evening, somehow get on the river near downtown. It's incredible. Yeah, world class, frankly. Absolutely. This is just on the uh, just past the boundary for uh, your ward, but the city is. I can't talk about it. (laughs) 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 The city's involved in the redevelopment of the old Blatchford Municipal Airport, Uh, and the idea is for that to become a major residential development. Yeah, you know things have not gone necessarily as quickly or smoothly as everyone hoped. Where, Where do you see that going? Well, I. 
I want to see it going. I would step back in time a little bit again, and, and I think what's kind of hamstrung that whole development was the myth, the myth that was built around it at its origin. There was a really strong push to close the airport. The airport had been a focus of debate in the city for more than 50 years. People were emotionally divided over this issue. So I give a lot of credit to Mayor Mandel for finally being able to get a council supporting the closure of that airport, which has done nothing but help the international airport and its ability to attract long-haul flights. You know, I think the mistake that was made was the council of the day had to create an image for citizens of why it was being done because the air service debate is complex, esoteric, and people had really bought into another myth, and that was this historic golden era of aviation. Golden era, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was... So I door-knocked in, when I ran against Councilor Katarina in 2010, and I got that at every door. Where do you stand on the airport? So there was a real strong opposition to it. And I think any of those people, if you could have sat down with them for two hours and shown them all the evidence as to why, they might have gone, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, close the airport. Not everybody, I'm just saying that... And it's a problem with a lot of these things is they're really complex. It takes me time to wrap my head around these things. And then, but I am, I'm challenged to do it. I'm supposed to do it. We get all the information and support from administration to make these decisions. The average citizen doesn't have that benefit. Anyways, the old myth was golden age of, of aviation, site for aviation during military, uh, during World War II, all this stuff. So how could you close it? Well, one way you could close it is by creating a new myth. And the myth was about a golden community rising out of that soil and to be the most advanced, sustainable neighborhood of all time anywhere. That set the bar really high. (laughs) Too high, I think. Because you don't want to lose money on it. Uh, even uh, even if it's kind of a demonstration project for the future, you don't want to lose money on it. So it had to be scaled back, and that was that was criticized by the original architect. I got a lot of criticism from creative people in the city, and and that's I think in part why it's been slow. We've been fighting over th- things like the district energy for the project. Is it a worthwhile investment, or you know because at the end of the day, we want a great project there. We want the densities that would support the LRT being right there, and they should work together, you know. But it's been incredibly slow to roll out, and I certainly have heard people say, why did you just turn it over to the private sector? They would have done it by now. I don't disagree with it, but again, we're dealing uh, with a project in the context of that old myth that was sold time again to Edmontonians. So it, it's not easy or simple to go, you know that thing, that golden city? Yeah, ignore yeah, what we forget said before. It. Yeah. We're just going to put up a bunch of houses. <laughs> uh, council would get rightly killed, and the people that wanted the airport kept open would have been absolutely furious. So we've got to work through it. 
work through all those issues and try to do something that is as close as we can to that original vision while not losing money, yeah. which is, I think, an expectation that Edmontonians would have for us not to lose a pile of money. Right. One of the arguments at the time for closing the airport was also that, hey, it was preventing the development of taller buildings downtown. For whatever it's worth to have tall buildings, it seems that, you know, we've had the uh, the proposal for Aldrich. We've had the Pearl go up, which is a very tall tower. 66-story Stantec building is going up. Yeah, under construction. It, exactly. Yeah. The new uh, building right over here. Is that Enbridge? Yeah. Yeah, Enbridge yeah. building. So there seems to have been some truth in in the argument. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a funny thing, and I don't think I've made up my mind on this, and I reserve the right to to remain open-minded on a bunch of issues because I think that's actually the way to be, that you can grow and change your opinion as you get more information. You know, is our fascination right now with tall towers, is it a bit reflective of a complex in the sense that, hey, nobody notices us, Calgary gets all the attention, so we're going to have a taller building than they are. <laughs> There's a, the, the counter-argument is, you know, builders, designers talk about human scale. I'm not sure exactly what that means, whether that's eight stories or 20 stories or 30 stories. Where does human scale end uh, or begin? And so I think that the limits on height should be based on sustainability. When does, this, when does that building become vertical sprawl and start becoming inefficient? Density is certainly a high value for the city, but not at the cost of uh, sustainability. So I don't know what that, you know, I, I, I remember reading pieces on this. I can't remember where the authors uh, was making the argument where you start to lose efficiency. But on the flip side, I've heard from developers who say the old 12-story concrete and steel building doesn't work because of the cost of uh, cement and steel and construction in Edmonton. That you actually, you have to go higher to get, to make some money. And, you know, and we hear, you know, we hear this too often, I think, that people say, oh, you're just helping out developers. They're just bleeding, you know, people dry. You know, we all live in houses where most of us do live in houses in communities that were done by developers and built by builders. And a lot of them are local companies. Yes, they make money. And that money then spins through the economy largely. I just refuse to buy into that sort of dichotomy of good citizenry, bad developer, or good citizenry, bad developer, bad politicians. It's way more complex than that. And, and you know, I ran in part, one of my hopes was we could reduce, that I could help reduce some of the cynicism. And I've tried to do that by presenting as the flawed guy I really am. I'm not. I'm nowhere near perfect, but I try to listen to everyone's opinions. I try to learn on this stuff. If I make a mistake, I've apologized for those mistakes. I've apologized for the city's mistakes. And for a while there, I was apologizing too often around the uh, metro line of the LRT, the 102 Ave Bridge, the Walterdale Bridge. And that's unfortunate. We had a string of uh, projects that were uh, letting the citizenry down. The uh, villains in those cases, I don't think we've, we're totally clear on, but it's, you know, it's not always a civil service either. And there's an old myth about sort of the lazy bureaucrat. And I can tell you, 
we're lucky in this city. We have a lot of really talented, hardworking people in in the uh, civil service. Not all of them. It's 14,000 people. Some of them probably come into work and try to do as little as they can, but I don't think they last very long. And, and as I remember it, Jason, there were a couple people like that at the Edmonton Journal newsroom. <laughs> You're not looking at me. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But I'm thinking of a couple of others who right. were around there forever. Yeah, who, for sure. You know, it happens. Yeah, it's, it's in any, any population group. Yeah. Scott, do you have any last thoughts or comments that you just want to say before we wrap things up? Well, I want to say this, you know, I love downtown. Like, I think it's really important to have a strong, vibrant, sexy downtown. And I think, you know, with the construction of West Edmonton Mall, I think Edmonton sort of gave up on its downtown. And City Council did too. So again, throwing some credit to Steve Mandel and his council and this council, there's, a you know, there's tens of millions or arguably billions of dollars of investment going into the downtown now. I don't think there's probably been a, f- a quicker revitalization of a downtown anywhere. And it's not just the private sector stuff being done by the uh, partnership, uh, the Oilers Entertainment Group and One Developments. It's all the road work that the city's doing on Jasper Avenue. It's the province with the Royal Alberta Museum. It's, you know, I think it's really going to be rock in place. And then we're, we're going to do some work on Chinatown, which I think is every great city has a great Chinatown. And I really look forward to the future here. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the uh, in the past couple of years, the impact it's had on families in Edmonton. Um, but we came through this again, seemingly okay. Not that, not that we're out of it completely or, but you know, if it kind of stayed like this or oil prices went up a little bit, I don't think any of us are, would mind not having another. Right. Better a Goldilocks economy than a boom bust economy. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm really excited about uh, everything going on in the ward. We have, except for those issues that I outlined earlier, I think Edmontonians would want us to treat our most vulnerable citizens properly. And if we can do that, we'll uplift businesses, we'll uplift communities, and we'll save a pile of money. And uh, I can't think of a more worthy goal than that. Councillor Scott McKean, thank you very much for joining me today. Jason, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks.